Section 12, Book 3, Part 2 of the Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broderib. Book 3, September to December, A.D. 69, Part 2. On this becoming known to Antonius, he determined to attack the hostile armies, while they were still distracted in feeling and divided in strength, before the generals could recover their authority and the soldiers their subordination, along with that confidence which would spring from the junction of the legions. He concluded, indeed, that Fabius Valens had left the capital, and would hasten his march on hearing of the treason of Caecina, and Fabius was loyal to Vitellius, and not without some military skill. At the same time he dreaded the approach of a vast body of Germans by way of Raetia. Vitellius had also summoned reinforcements from Britain, Gaul, and Spain, whose arms would have wasted like a widespread pestilence, had not Antonius, fearful of this very danger, hurried on an engagement, and thus secured his victory. He reached Bedriacum with his whole army in two days' march from Verona. The next day, keeping the legions to fortify the position, he sent the auxiliary infantry into the territories of Cremona, ostensibly to collect supplies, really, to imbue the soldiery with a taste for the spoils of civil war. He himself advanced with four thousand cavalry as far as the eighth milestone from Bedriacum, in order that they might plunder with greater freedom. The scouts, as usual, took a wider range. It was almost eleven o'clock when a horseman arrived at full speed with the news that the enemy were approaching that a small body was moving in front, but that the stir and noise could be heard far and wide. While Antonius was deliberating as to what was to be done, Arius Verus, eager to do his best, charged with the bravest of the cavalry, and drove back the Vitellianists, inflicting upon them some slight loss. As more came up, the fortune of the day changed, and those who had been most eager in the pursuit found themselves last in the flight. This rash act did not originate with Antonius. He anticipated, in fact, what actually happened. He now urged his soldiers to enter on the battle with a good heart. He then drew off the squadrons of his cavalry to the two flanks, leaving in the midst an open space in which to receive Varus and his troopers. The legions were ordered to arm themselves. Signals were made over the country that every man should leave plundering and join the battle at the nearest point. Meanwhile, the terror-stricken Varus plunged into the disordered ranks of his friends and brought a panic with him. The fresh troops were driven back along with the wounded fugitives, confused by their own alarm and by the difficulties of the road. In the midst of this panic, Antonius omitted nothing that a self-possessed commander or a most intrepid soldier could do. 
He threw himself before the terrified fugitives. He held back those who were giving way. And wherever the struggle was hardest, wherever there was a gleam of hope, there he was with his ready skill, his bold hand, his encouraging voice, easily recognized by the enemy, and a conspicuous object to his own men. At last he was carried to such a pitch of excitement that he transfixed with a lance a flying standard-bearer, and then, seizing the standard, turned it towards the enemy. Touched by the reproach, a few troopers, not more than a hundred in number, made a stand. The locality favoured them, for the road was at that point particularly narrow, while the bridge over the stream which crossed it had been broken down, and the stream itself, with its varying channel and its precipitous banks, checked their flight. It was this necessity, or a happy chance, that restored the fallen fortunes of the party. Forming themselves into strong and close ranks, they received the attack of the Vitellianists, who were now imprudently scattered. These were at once overthrown. Antonius pursued those that fled, and crushed those that encountered him. Then came the rest of his troops, who, as they were severally disposed, plundered, made prisoners, or seized on weapons and horses. Roused by the shouts of triumph, those who had lately been scattered in flight over the fields hastened to share in the victory. At the fourth milestone from Cremona glittered the standards of two legions, the Italica and the Repax, which had been advanced as far as that point during the success achieved by the first movement of their cavalry. But when fortune changed, they would not open their ranks, nor receive the fugitives, nor advance and themselves attack an enemy now exhausted by so protracted a pursuit and conflict. Vanquished by accident, these men had never in their success valued their general as much as they now in disaster felt his absence. The victorious cavalry charged the wavering line, the tribune Vipstanus Messala, followed with the auxiliary troops from Mesia, whom, though hurriedly brought up, long service had made as good soldiers as the legionaries. The horse and foot, thus mixed together, broke through the line of the legions. The near neighbourhood of the fortifications of Cremona, while it gave more hope of escape, diminished the vigour of their resistance. Antonius did not press forward for he thought of the fatigue and the wounds with which a battle so hard fought, notwithstanding its successful termination, must have disabled his cavalry and their horses. As the shadows of evening deepened, the whole strength of the Flavianist army came up. They advanced amid heaps of dead and the traces of recent slaughter, and, as if the war was over, demanded that they should advance to Cremona and receive the capitulation of the vanquished party, or take the place by storm. This was the motive alleged, and it sounded well. But what every one said to himself was this. The colony, situated as it is on level ground, may be taken by assault. If we attack under cover of darkness, we shall be at least as bold, and shall enjoy more license in plunder. If we wait for the light... We shall be met with entreaties for peace, and in return for our toil and our wounds shall receive only the empty satisfaction of clemency and praise, but the wealth of Cremona will go into the purses of the legates and the prefects. The soldiers have the plunder of a city that is stormed, 
the generals of one which capitulates. The centurions and tribunes were spurned away, that no man's voice might be heard. The troops clashed their weapons together, ready to break through all discipline, unless they were led as they wished. Antonius then made his way into the companies. When his presence and personal authority had restored silence, he declared, I would not snatch their glory or their reward from those who have deserved them so well. Yet there is a division of duties between the army and its generals. Eagerness for battle becomes the soldiers. But generals serve the cause by forethought, by counsel, by delay oftener than by temerity. As I promoted your victory to the utmost of my power, by my sword and by my personal exertions, so now I must help you by prudence and by counsel the qualities which belong peculiarly to a general. What you will have to encounter is indeed perfectly plain. There will be the darkness, the strange localities of the town, the enemy inside the walls, and all possible facilities for ambuscades. Even if the gates were wide open, we ought not to enter the place, except we had first reconnoitred it, and in the daytime. Shall we set about storming the town when we have no means seeing where the ground is level, what is the height of the walls, whether the city is to be assailed by our artillery and javelins, or by siege works and covered approaches? He then turned to individual soldiers, asking them whether they had brought with them their axes and spades, and whatever else is used when towns are to be stormed. On their admitting that they had not done so, Can any hands, he answered, break through and undermine walls with swords and lances? And if it should be found necessary to throw up an embankment and to shelter ourselves under mantlets and hurdles, shall we stand baffled like a thoughtless mob, marvelling at the height of the towers and at the enemy's defences? Shall we not rather? by delaying one night till our artillery and engines come up, take with us a strength that must prevail. At the same time, he sent the suitlers and camp followers with the freshest of the cavalry to Bedriarchum to fetch supplies and whatever else they needed. The soldiers, however, were impatient, and a mutiny had almost broken out when some cavalry, who had advanced to the very walls of Cremona, seized some stragglers from the town, from whose information it was ascertained that the six legions of Vitellius and the entire army which had been quartered at Hostilia had on that very day marched a distance of thirty miles, and having heard of the defeat of their comrades, were preparing for battle, and would soon be coming up. This alarm opened the ears that had before been deaf to their general's advice. The 13th Legion was ordered to take up its position on the raised causeway of the Via Postumia, supported on the left by the 7th, Galbus, which was posted in the plain. Next came the 7th, Claudius's, defended in front by a field ditch, such being the character of the ground. On the right was the 8th Legion, drawn up in an open space, and then the 3rd, whose ranks were divided by some thick brushwood. Such was the arrangement of the eagles and the standards. 
the soldiers were mingled in the darkness as accident had determined. The Praetorian colours were close to the Third Legion. The auxiliary infantry were stationed on the wings. The cavalry covered the flanks and the rear. Sido and Italicus, the Suavian chieftains, with a picked body of their countrymen, manoeuvred in the van. It would have been the best policy for the army of Vitellius to rest at Cremona, and with strength recruited by food and repose, to attack and crush the next day an enemy exhausted by cold and hunger. But now, wanting a leader, and having no settled plan, they came into collision about nine o'clock at night with the Flavianus troops, who stood ready and in order of battle, respecting the disposition of the Vitellianist army, disordered as it was by its fury and by the darkness i would not venture to speak positively some however have related that on the right wing was the fourth legion the macedonian that the fifth and fifteenth with the veterans of three british legions the ninth second and twentieth formed the centre while the left wing was made up of the first the sixteenth and the twenty-second men of the legions repax and italica were mingled with all the companies the cavalry and the auxiliaries chose their position themselves throughout the night the battle raged in many forms indecisive and fierce destructive first to one side then to the other courage strength even the eye with its keenest sight were of no avail both armies fought with the same weapons the watchword, continually asked, became known. The colours were confused together as parties of competence snatched them from the enemy and hurried them in this or that direction. The seventh legion, recently levied by Galba, was the hardest pressed. Six centurions of the first rank were killed and some of the standards taken. But the eagle was saved by Attilius Verus, the centurion of the first company who, after making a great slaughter among the enemy, at last fell. The line was supported, as it began to waver, by Antonius, who brought up the Praetorians. They took up the conflict, repulsed the enemy, and were then themselves repulsed. The troops of Vitellius had collected their artillery on the raised causeway, where there was a free and open space for the discharge of the missiles which had first had been scattered at random and had struck against the trees without injury to the enemy an engine of remarkable size belonging to the fifteenth legion was crushing the hostile ranks with huge stones and would have spread destruction far and wide had not two soldiers ventured on a deed of surpassing bravery Disguising themselves with shields snatched from the midst of the carnage, they cut the ropes and springs of the engine. They were instantly slain, and their names have consequently been lost. But the fact is undoubted. Fortune favoured neither side, till at a late hour of the night the moon rose and showed, but showed deceptively, both armies. The light, however, shining from behind, favoured the Flavianists, with them a lengthened shadow fell from men and horses, and the enemy's missiles, incorrectly aimed at what seemed the substance, fell short, while the Vitellianists, who had the light shining on their faces, were unconsciously exposed to an enemy who were, so to speak, concealed while they aimed. 
as soon as Antonius could recognize his men, and be recognized by them, he sought to kindle their courage, striving to shame some with his reproaches, stirring many with praise and encouragement, and all with hopes and promises. Why, he demanded of the legions of Pannonia, have you again taken up arms? Yonder is the field where you may wipe out the stain of past disgrace and redeem your honour. Then turning to the troops of Mysia, he appealed to them as the authors and originators of the war. Idly, he said, have you challenged the Vitellianists with threatening words, if you cannot abide their attack or even their looks. So he spoke to each as he approached them. The third legion he addressed at greater length, reminding them of old and recent achievements, how under Marcus Antonius they had defeated the Parthians, under Corbulo the Armenians, and had lately discomfited the Sarmatians. Then angrily turning to the Praetorians, Clowns, said he, unless you are victorious, what other general, what other camp will receive you? There are your colours and your arms. Defeat is death, for disgrace you have exhausted. A shout was raised on all sides, and the soldiers of the third legion saluted, as is the custom in Syria, the rising sun. A vague rumour thus arose, or was intentionally suggested by the general, that Mucianus had arrived, and that the two armies had exchanged salutations. The men then charged as confidently as if they had been strengthened by fresh reinforcements, while the enemy's array was now less compact, for, as there was no one to command, it was now contracted, now extended, as the courage or fear of individual soldiers might prompt. Antonius, seeing that they gave way, charged them with a heavy column. The loose ranks were at once broken, and, entangled as they were among their wagons and artillery, could not be reformed. The conquerors, in the eagerness of pursuit, dispersed themselves over the entire line of road. The slaughter that followed was made particularly memorable through the murder of a father by his son. I will record the incident with the names on the authority of Vipstanus Messala. Julius Mansuetus, a Spaniard, enlisting in the legion Rapax, had left at home a son of tender age. The lad grew up to manhood, and was enrolled by Galba in the seventh legion. Now chancing to meet his father, he brought him to the ground with a wound, and, as he rifled his dying foe, recognised him and was himself recognised. Clasping the expiring man in his arms, in piteous accents he implored the spirit of his father to be propitious to him, and not to turn from him with loathing as from a parasite. This guilt, he said, is shared by all. How small a part of a civil war is a single soldier. With these words, he raised the body, opened a grave, and discharged the last duties for his father. This was noticed by those who were on the spot, then by many others. Astonishment and indignation ran through the whole army, and they cursed this most horrible war. Yet as eagerly as ever, they stripped the bodies 
of slaughtered kinsfolk, connections and brothers. They talk of an impious act having been done, and they do it themselves. When they reached Cremona, a fresh work of vast difficulty presented itself. During the war with Otho, the legions of Germany had formed their camp round the walls of the city. Round this camp had drawn an entrenchment, and had again strengthened these defences. At this sight the victorious army hesitated, while the generals doubted what orders they should give. To attempt an assault with troops exhausted by the toil of a day and a night would be difficult, and with no proper reserves might be perilous. Should they return to Bedriacum, the fatigue of so long a march would be insupportable, and their victory would result in nothing. To entrench a camp with the enemy so close at hand would be dangerous, as by a sudden sortie they might cause confusion among them while dispersed and busied with the work. Above all, they were afraid of their soldiers, who were more patient of danger than delay. Cautious measures they disliked. Their rashness inspired them with hope, and eagerness for plunder outweighed all the horrors of carnage, wounds, and bloodshed. Antonius himself was this way inclined, and he ordered the entrenched camp to be invested. At first they fought from a distance with arrows and stones, the Flavianists suffering most, as the enemy's missiles were aimed at them from a superior height. Antonius then assigned to each legion the attack on some portion of the entrenchments, and on one particular gate, seeking by this division of labour to distinguish the cowardly from the brave, and to stimulate his men by an honourable rivalry. The third and seventh legions took up a position close to the road from Bedriacum. More to the right of the entrenchments were stationed the eighth and the seventh Claudiuses. The thirteenth were carried by the impetuosity of their attack as far as the gate looking towards Brixia. There ensued a little delay, while from the neighbouring fields some were collecting spades and pickaxes, others hooks and ladders. Then raising their shields over their heads, they advanced to the rampart in a dense testudo. Both used the arts of Roman warfare. The Vitellianists rolled down ponderous stones and drove spears and long poles into the broken and tottering testudo, till the dense array of shields was loosened and the ground was strewn with a vast number of lifeless and mangled bodies. Some hesitation had shown itself when the generals, seeing that the weary troops would not listen to what seemed to them unmeaning encouragement, pointed to Cremona, whether this was, as Messala relates, the device of Hormus, or whether Caius Plinius be the better authority when he charges it upon Antonius, I cannot easily determine. All I can say is this, that neither in Antonius nor in Hormus would this foulest of crimes have been a degeneracy from the character of their former lives. Wounds or bloodshed no longer kept the men back from undermining the rampart and battering the gates. Supported on the shoulders of comrades, and forming a second testudo, they clambered up and seized the weapons and even the hands of the enemy. The unhurt and the wounded, the half-dead and the dying, were mingled together with every incident of slaughter and death in every form. 
The fiercest struggle was maintained by the third and seventh legions, and Antonius in person, with some chosen auxiliaries, concentrated his efforts on the same point. The Vitellianists, unable to resist the combined and resolute attack, and finding that their missiles glided off the testudo, at last threw the engine itself on the assailants. For a moment it broke and overwhelmed those on whom it fell, but it drew after it in its fall the battlements and upper part of the rampart. At the same time an adjoining tower yielded to the volleys of stones, and, while the seventh legion in wedge-like array was endeavouring to force an entrance, the third broke down the gate with axes and swords. All authors are agreed that Caius Volusius, a soldier of the third legion, entered first. Beating down all who opposed him, he mounted the rampart, waved his hand, and shouted aloud that their camp was taken. The rest of the legion burst in, while the troops of Vitellius were seized with panic and threw themselves from the rampart. The entire space between the camp and the walls of Cremona was filled with slain. Difficulties of another kind presented themselves in the lofty walls of the town, its stone towers, its iron-barred gates, in the garrison who stood brandishing their weapons, in its numerous population devoted to the interests of Vitellius and in the vast conflux from all parts of Italy which had assembled at the fair regularly held at that time. The besieged found a source of strength in these large numbers, the assailants an incentive in the prospect of booty. Antonius gave orders that fire should instantly be set to the finest buildings without the city, to see whether the inhabitants of Cremona might not be induced by the loss of their property to transfer their allegiance. Some houses near the walls, which overtopped the fortifications, he filled with the bravest of his soldiers, who, by hurling beams, tiles, and flaming missiles, dislodged the defenders from the ramparts. The legions now began to form themselves into a testudo, and the other troops to discharge volleys of stones and darts, when the courage of the Vitellianists began to flag. The higher their rank, the more readily they succumbed to fortune. Fearing that when Cremona had fallen, Corta could no longer be expected, and that all the fury of the conqueror would be turned, not on the penniless crowd, but on the tribunes and centurions, by whose slaughter something was to be gained. The common soldiers, careless of the future, and safer in their obscurity, still held out. Roaming through the streets, or concealed in the houses, they would not sue for peace, even when they had abandoned the contest. The principal officers of the camp removed the name and images of Vitellius. Caecina, who was still in confinement, they released from his chains, imploring him to plead their cause. When he haughtily rejected their suit, they entreated him with tears, and it was indeed the last aggravation of misery that many valiant men should invoke the aid of a traitor. Then they displayed from the walls the olive branches and chaplets of suppliants, and when Antonius had ordered that the discharge of missiles should cease, they brought out the eagles and standards. Then followed with eyes bent on the ground, 
a dismal array of unarmed men. The conquerors had gathered round. At first they heaped reproaches on them, and pointed at them their weapons. Then seeing how they offered their cheeks to insulting blows, how, with all their high spirit departed, they submitted, as vanquished men, to every indignity, it suddenly occurred to their recollection that these were the very soldiers who but shortly before had used with moderation their victory at Bedriacum. Yet, when Caecina the consul, conspicuous in his robes of state and with his train of lictors, came forward thrusting aside the crowd, the victors were fired with indignation and reproached him with his tyranny, his cruelty, and, so hateful are such crimes, even with his treason. Antonius checked them, gave him an escort, and sent him to Vespasian. Meanwhile, the population of Cremona was roughly handled by the soldiers, who were just beginning a massacre, when their fury was mitigated by the entreaties of the generals. Antonius summoned them to an assembly, extolled the conquerors, spoke kindly to the conquered, but said nothing either way of Cremona. Over and above the innate love of plunder, there was an old feud which made the army bent on the destruction of the inhabitants. It was generally believed that in the war with Otho, as well as in the present, they had supported the cause of Vitellius. Afterwards, when the 13th legion had been left to build an amphitheatre, with the characteristic insolence of a city population, they had wantonly provoked and insulted them. The ill-feeling had been aggravated by the gladiatorial show exhibited there by Caecina, by the circumstance that their city was now for the second time the seat of war, and by the fact that they had supplied the Vitellianists with provisions in the field, and that some of their women, taken by party zeal into the battle, had there been slain. The occurrence of the fair filled the colony, rich as it always was, with an appearance of still greater wealth. The other generals were unnoticed. Antonius, from his success and high reputation, was observed of all. He had hastened to the baths to wash off the blood, and when he found fault with the temperature of the water, an answer was heard, that it would soon be warm enough. Thus the words of a slave brought on him the whole odium of having given the signal for firing the town, which was indeed already in flames. Forty thousand armed men burst into Cremona, and with them a body of suitlers and camp-followers, yet more numerous and yet more abandoned to lust and cruelty. Neither age nor rank were any protection from indiscriminate slaughter and violation. Aged men and women passed their prime, worthless as booty, were dragged about in wanton insult. Did a grown-up maiden or youth of marked beauty fall in their way, they were torn in pieces by the violent hands of ravishers, and in the end the destroyers themselves were provoked into mutual slaughter. Men, as they carried off for themselves coin or temple offerings of massive gold, were cut down by others of superior strength. Some, scorning what met the eye, searched for hidden wealth, and dug up buried treasures, applying the scourge and the torture to the owners. In their hands were flaming torches, 
which, as soon as they had carried out the spoil, they wantonly hurled into the gutted houses and plundered temples. In an army which included such varieties of language and character, an army comprising Roman citizens, allies, and foreigners, there was every kind of lust, each had a law of his own, and nothing was forbidden. For four days Cremona satisfied the plunderers, when all things else, sacred and profane, were settling down into the flames. The temple of Mephitis, outside the walls, alone remained standing, saved by its situation, or by divine interposition. Such was the end of Cremona, two hundred and eighty-six years after its foundation. It was built in the consulship of Tiberius Sempronius and Cornelius Scipio, when Hannibal was threatening Italy, as a protection against the Gauls from beyond the Padus, or against any other sudden invader from the Alps. From the number of settlers, the conveniences afforded by the rivers, the fertility of the soil, and the many connections and intermarriages formed with neighbouring nations, it grew and flourished, unharmed by foreign enemies, though most unfortunate in civil wars. Ashamed of the atrocious deed, and aware of the detestation which it was inspiring, Antonius issued a proclamation that no one should detain in captivity a citizen of Cremona, the spoil indeed had been rendered valueless to the soldiers by general agreement throughout Italy, which rejected with loathing the purchase of such slaves. A massacre then began. When this was known, the prisoners were secretly ransomed by their friends and relatives. The remaining inhabitants soon returned to Cremona. The temples and squares were restored by the munificence of the burghers, and Vespasian gave his exhortations. The soil, poisoned with blood, forbade the enemy to remain long by the ruins of the buried city. They advanced to the third milestone, and gathered the dispersed and panic-stricken Vitellianists round their proper standards. The vanquished legions were then scattered throughout Illyricum, for civil war was not over, and they might play a doubtful part. Messengers carrying news of the victory were then dispatched to Britain and to Spain. Julius Calenus, a tribune, was sent to Gaul, and Alpinius Montanus, prefect of a cohort, to Germany. As the one was an Iduan, the other a Trevere, and both were Vitellianists, they would be a proof of the success. At the same time, the passes of the Alps were occupied with troops, for it was suspected that Germany was arming itself to support Vitellius. End of Book 3, Part 2 Recording by Andrew Coleman